Very good morning. It's great to be with you. My name is John, and I've come with a number of um, people we've been trying to get rid of in our church, and I'm hoping, that, I'm hoping you will take them. Please take them. Um, I'm hoping to leave them here. No, um, we've, we've seen the value of traveling to other places and um, praying for people, and I'm very grateful to you guys for coming, and also the people who are involved in leading the worship. It's really kind of you to make the time. And um, I was reminded this morning by one of our team of something that happened when we, um, when we uh, did this in another church. Um, somebody said to me, I believe that, that there is a person here that needs to receive um, money. And somebody else on the team had actually um, felt prompted to take out money um, and just turn up with it. So that seemed like it might be the right thing. And um, I also heard this worship leader leading worship and I thought he was absolutely brilliant. And I, I felt that God showed me a couple of things about the worship leader. And um, it turned out that he had, um, he'd always found it very, very difficult to receive money. And he, um, we even said to him, look, we think that you're the person that should receive this money. And um, he had immediately said to himself, I'm, I'm just going to give that away. I'll give that away. Because he hadn't really been able to receive. He understood giving, but he hadn't been able to understand receiving as well. And so this is an incredible um, act of God in his life. He actually needed quite a lot of money because of a training thing he was doing. And uh, the reason that I'm uh, telling you that story is because um, earlier on when I was sitting at the back, um, I, uh, my attention was drawn to a guy called James sitting at the back over there, who I don't know. I asked somebody what his name was. And um, I, James, for whatever reason, I feel that a lot of this is going to be relevant to you. Um, what it won't be is a criticism or a, or, a, or a rebuke of you in any way. But I believe, and you can tell me afterwards whether I'm right or wrong, that some of this is going to apply to you. And uh, I was thinking this week about crisis, as Mike was mentioning, and I had a crisis uh, of the kind that nobody wants. Computer just stopped working completely. There was a power surge in the bathroom, and uh, a light bulb blew in the bathroom. My study's next to the bathroom, and so my computer just stopped working completely. And I had a lot of stuff I needed to write, including looking at the things I was going to say here today. And um, it was the wrong time. And I, we've got this, the church has got this backup, our IT backup, and I called them. It was about two hours on the phone trying to sort out what was wrong with the computer. They couldn't fix it. I have to go into an actual Apple store to, for them to fix it. The guy said it's actually fine, so I take it home. I plug it back in. It's not fine. It's exactly the same problem again. And this is now uh, half a day of the crisis. And then, and then uh, I have to go back and find a techie from my own church who can come to the church and fix something on the screen, which is the crisis, the root of the crisis. So he comes. It's now 4 o'clock. Letting him in, um, he goes upstairs. He does it in 3.2 seconds. So uh, it's something that's blown in the screen. It's all done. So it's taken the whole day. And then in the middle of it, I realized, hang on a sec, um, when this guy came around, he did, not, he did not get mauled by the dog. Where is the dog? Where's the dog? So I go up and down the house, and I can't find the flipping thing. Where is the dog? So now I've got a dog-shaped crisis, and I'm about to start. I've given it to my wife now. I've given her the crisis. She's doing a presentation somewhere, which she's very anxious about. I don't care. We've got a dog-shaped crisis. 
you love that dog. What am I supposed to do about the dog? I'm trying to work out what to do about the dog. Uh, it's nowhere. What's actually happened is my daughter's come home unexpectedly and taken him for a walk unexpectedly. That's what's happened to the dog. But there's a whole crisis going on. Do you know what? I'm reminded that when it comes to crises that, you know, I'm just not the right person for this crisis. I'm too busy, right? I've got too much other stuff going on. I don't really care that much about the dog. I, I am, I am, in fact, the dog has given me oral allergy syndrome. I've got a massive overdose of allergy courtesy of having a flipping dog. I'm the wrong person for the crisis. It's coming at the wrong time. I'm not ready for the crisis. So, just a few elements of crisis for us. Because I want to say that I believe that the, the church as a whole, not this church, the church as a whole is in a major crisis. And I, I want to start with the, the biggest dimension of the crisis, which isn't us. You don't have to dip very far below the surface of things to encounter a fair measure of, let's be British about it, concern, really hopelessness, uncertainty over Brexit, the promise of a life of long-term debt with no prospect of home ownership for the young, Tottenham being in the top four. None of these things have helped recently. Now, when Noah launched the ark, way back when, I was doing one of the first Alpha courses, and I would say that the may, if we had a course of about 30 people, maybe two of those people were quite obviously struggling with life. Maybe two out of 30, obvious difficulties. Now I would say that virtually everybody who does my version of it, which we call the life course, which is pretty much the same thing with a different name, um, I would say virtually everybody that does the course is in a crisis. And you know, you could lay the blame at decades of arid secularization. The problem with not believing in God, ultimately, is that there isn't a big enough myth to hold us together. I'm using the word myth in technical terms. If you don't believe that there is an ultimate someone who has values and principles and a natural personality, the problem with dispensing with that idea, ultimately, is it leaves about 350 million other lesser gods who are all autonomous, all doing their own thing, all pursuing their individual pursuits, and there is nothing really to hold us together. No concept of nation, no concept of um, a political philosophy. There isn't anything that's big enough or persuasive enough to overcome the power of individualism. And rampant individualism is where we are as a culture. And, and the problem is, of course, that if, if ultimately it's up to me to decide what's right or wrong, so close to the heart of that in human nature is self-interest. And so the problem is people get in the way of the pursuit of other people's best interests, their sense of best interest, and so there are going to be casualties. And I reckon we've seen decades of this now. We've seen decades and decades of casualties of individualism. And connected to that is the breakdown of marriage and also the wider extended family unit. So neuroscience is unequivocally demonstrating that what we need most to function in life is the existence of loving long-term relationships. And the impact of relationship trauma on successive generations of children, now adults, has been and is absolutely enormous. That's the first bit of the crisis. The second bit of the crisis is where does the church fit in? 
Where do we fit into this picture? When I started evangelizing in this country, I would say that most people that I encountered had a relationship with the church of a kind. I would say generally it was a bad relationship derived from what had been passed on by parents, what had been passed on by school or chapel. But at least it was a relationship. It was just a bad one. Now I would say that most people have no relationship with us. And that means that by the time they get to us, if they get to us at all, we are a last resort. They've already exhausted many other options, hence a considerable degree of damage in the people that actually turn up. None of which means that people have changed. They're still searching for something real. They're still searching for meaning. They're still searching for things that are transcendent. It's just that the problem is that they doubt whether people like us have got anything to say to them. That's the problem. If they want to explore God or spirituality, they're unlikely to connect those things with what happens in a church building. As I mentioned, the reason that previous generations had a bad relationship with the church was that it was because it was boring and apparently irrelevant. Most of my generation did not go to church because their parents went, and when they went, it wasn't interesting. For decades now, people simply haven't been interested in what we do. I used to say, in reciting meaningless creeds, in dreary services, in outdated languages, that's what I used to say, but now I would simply say they're simply not interested in what we do. The inability of our churches to do enough that is interesting over decades means that we're continuing to decline in size due to an unstoppable death rate amongst older churchgoers, and nothing that we are currently doing is making any impact on the rate of decline. Ladies and gentlemen, that is a crisis. Do you see what I'm saying? Thanks. Now, that may leave you feeling unmoved. You didn't come here to be today to be told this kind of thing, and you have no idea how long I've spent wrestling with whether I should bother saying this to you. Because I don't want to say it any more than you want to hear it. It may make you feel depressed. Why did I bother coming at all? And these have been my feelings about this crisis and my positions as well. I've never been one to bother with the big picture about anything, really. And I've simply got on with making life in my church as interesting as I can. And I can say that non-Christians, as here, non-Christians have at least always come to it. We are smaller these days than we were, but we still impact unbelievers and I am not claiming in any way to have succeeded, but as I make myself lift my head above the parapet of my own preoccupations, I do not like what I see. And I'm haunted by the idea that the solution to the problem is at least tantalizingly straightforward. And this is my biggest anxiety, that fixing it is probably quite easy. Surely the people of this country just need to see something interesting. And, you know, what have we got, really? Only this. God manifestly at work amongst us. Events which require an explanation. Things that we do that do not make sense unless there's a God. Right? So theoretically, we probably all know the answer. I mean, as in all things Christian, 
You know, there's this Sunday school story about a Sunday school teacher who goes, okay, children, what's red with a bushy tail, eats nuts and lives up a tree? And there's a child that goes, Johnny, yes, Johnny, what's the answer? The answer is, the answer is Jesus, um, but I know it's a squirrel. So basically in church, the answer is Jesus, isn't it? So in this case, we need manifest demonstrations of the power of Jesus, different sorts of manifestations, which if people come and they see it, they think there isn't really another possible explanation, I would like to suggest. It's things like that that make us interesting. So 38% do not believe in God. 14% aren't sure. So that means our country is well on the way to conclusively rejecting dull versions of church. Positively, though, if we who say we believe, which has got to be virtually everybody here, could actually be bothered enough, and I think that's our greatest challenge, being bothered enough to be interesting, then I think they will think again. What is being interesting? It's behaving like the authentic, loving, spirit-filled body of Jesus on the earth. Simples. As long as we know how to do that. As long as we know how to do that. I mean, you are very fortunate to be led by Mike and Bex for one reason only, which is they are definitely people of the spirit. And I know that because I've known them forever. There are lots of church leaders that actually have a lot of difficulty with the Spirit, following the Spirit, trying to follow the Spirit. These are not they. So you're in the highly fortunate category. I'm glad for you. So let's go back to the beginning. The call of Jesus to his disciples was absolute. They had to deny themselves, take up their cross and follow him, no turning back. Could we just show Matthew 16, verse 24? Does it come up on the screens? There we go. I'm just going to reference various verses as we go. They'll come up behind me. And Jesus' commitment to his disciples was absolute. He gave his life for them on the cross, and he promised them his spirit, John 14, 26. So without these two gifts of his grace, their discipleship would have been hopeless and disastrous. Do you believe that? No, do you? So without Jesus' death on the cross, without the gift of the Spirit, would it all have been a bit of a waste of time? So when the Spirit comes upon them at Pentecost, nothing can stop them. Very familiar verses, Acts 2, 1 to 4. This is their encounter with the Spirit. It's quite frightening. There's the wind that starts to blow. I mean, it's not a little breeze, right? It's a wind. It's a killer wind. It's blowing in your house. That's a problem. And then you can see people's heads burning. Their heads are burning, and your head's burning. I mean, it's not simple. It's not nice. It's not what you signed up for. It's quite worrying. No wonder they got out of the room. Despite threats, imprisonments, beatings, killings, their enraged opponents had to acknowledge that these timid, ordinary people had turned the world upside down. Do you believe that? It was a stupendous missionary achievement. It has never been paralleled in history. Devoid of human resources, they were totally dependent on the power of the Spirit. Do you believe that that was the explanation? So today, the church has innumerable resources, buildings, sound systems, multimedia technology. Much less impressive is evidence of the power of the Spirit. Do you believe that that matters? 
No, no, seriously, do you believe it matters or not? I mean, you could say no. The vast majority of people who come to faith come to faith when they are children. Half the churches in this country have less than five people under the age of 16 in them. That is a crisis. How many alphas have we done? How many life courses have I done? Do you remember the decade of evangelism? Umpteen innumerable attempts to change the situation have only at best slightly arrested a rate of decline, at best. So what can we do? If we can be bothered enough, what can we do? Well, I think to start with, it's good to realize there actually is a crisis. So for, for when Beck says, do you know what, we're having a prayer meeting, I would like to suggest that's the first thing to go to, the prayer meeting. I'll just remind you of why. You know, when you're in a crisis, you feel desperate. I've lost the dog. The dog is gone. My computer is not working. There is panic, panic, desperation, panic, crisis. There's probably all kinds of, you know, physical things I could talk about if I knew anything about science, which I don't, but it's all going on in my system, right? Now, if you're a Christian, obviously your next response is going to be one of prayer because we know about prayer. And isn't it awful how so often it takes a situation of suffering, which is really a crisis, to draw us back to God? And isn't it, aren't we terrible people in that when things are going well, we just drift away like little snowflakes on a warming pavement? We are awful people. So when things are all right, oh, it's all right. It's all right. Everything's all right. <laughs> and then it's not all right, and suddenly... The first thing we do is pray. I got a message from a friend saying that his wife had got a bleed on the brain. Could we all pray? Crisis prayer. So I think you could tell how seriously, how, how much we, this church, for example, feels it's in a crisis by how many people go to the Christmas prayer meeting. Why? Because at Christmas, they're all going to come in. The naked, unwashed, slathering pagans will turn up because they want to sing some songs. So they are going to come, aren't they? It's effortless. Happens in my church as well. It's effortless. So we're actually going to connect with them. Woohoo! You know, crisis number one, all those people with all their pain and the unresolved godlessness, the hurt of their life, that we're actually going to be able to speak to them. And you've got someone like Mike who's going to be able to speak to them, be funny, move them. They're actually, some of them will do the next alpha, blah, 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 blah. It's a wonderful opportunity. It's a wonderful time of the year. For us, it's a wonderful time of the year. So I'm saying if we actually theoretically... Look, this is not a plug for the flipping prayer meeting. I'm only picking up on what I've heard. I'm just saying if this church actually does think it's in a crisis, it would do the obvious thing, which is to fall on its face and call upon the name of God. Do you, do you not think that's quite biblical? And have you not noticed that when God is going to do something, he finds people who are not looking for a crisis? Like Moses, for example, who knows he can't speak. And, and God says, you'll be fine. And Moses says, do you know what? What about my brother Aaron? Because he'll probably be a better man for a crisis. And Jesus says, no. You, uh, God says, no, you're enough of a failure. You'll do. 
And he doesn't like it when Moses tries to wriggle out of it. Gideon, who is a weak and useless man, who basically says, I'm a weak and useless man. There are other stronger and bolder warriors. And God says, no, you'll be absolutely fine. Because this is the glory of God, isn't it? To take people who are not looking for a crisis, who are not fit for the crisis, who don't know what to do in the crisis, and make them his number one answer. So if you're thinking, you know, this is, doesn't apply to me, it does. Stop it. You know, there's too much suffering in my life. I've got too many other things to think about. I am too busy. My children are a nightmare if you knew my children, etc. Imagine you were part of the original crisis, just to put ours in perspective. So there are 11 of you, and your task is to communicate the gospel to the whole world. See ya. It's the original crisis. How was that ever going to happen? In the closing hours of his ministry, as we know, Jesus spoke several times about the coming of the Holy Spirit. In John 14, 16 to 17, 25 to 26, he calls the Holy Spirit a counselor, who will be with the disciples forever, all that Jesus had been to them during his time with them upon the earth for those three short years, the Spirit would be to them, would do for them always and everywhere. He would guide, teach, encourage, rebuke, strengthen, empower. He would be the Spirit of truth, not received or understood by the world, but forever dwelling in those who follow Jesus. He would teach them all things and bring to remembrance all that Jesus said to them. Do you believe that such Spirit empowerment was only necessary for Jesus and the disciples? Or is that a template for everybody that wants to follow Jesus and wants to advance the kingdom? What do you think? Because you can see what you can see, can't you? I mean, Peter is the ultimate doofus. He really is. Something I found out recently. In the Greek, when Jesus tries to reinstate Jesus, Peter's even failing the reinstatement. So, for example, Jesus says, do you agape me? He asked him three times, do you love me? But in the Greek, the first two times, Jesus says to him, do you agape me? Do you love me in the highest spiritual form of love? And Peter goes, no, I'm your friend. I filiate you, I filiate you. That's why Jesus asked him three times, because he's not responding. The third time, Jesus comes down to his level and says, are you my friend? And Peter says, yes, because that's the best he can do. Oh, my dear goodness me. How much God puts up with from us, right? And we are awful people. We are. But I think God likes that. We are a sick joke. God uses us to have a laugh at the world with all its strength and its power. So the weak and the broken, you know, we are a special thing. If we were to judge by what most churches do and do not do, we would have to conclude that the idea of spirit empowerment is believed at best to be an optional extra. For some people, maybe, at some times, but not for me and not all the time. And so then we, we're left with ourselves, and I think this is where we are failing the people out there because we're never left to ourselves. 
but at some point we've got to start believing what we say we believe, otherwise the crisis is going to remain. So, to conclude, four aspects of the work of the Spirit, just to remind us of what the Spirit does. The Holy Spirit is the person in whose dimension of life we experience God. So there's nothing that you do in the Christian life that's not brought to you by the power of the Spirit. You can't pray without the leadership of the Spirit. You can't understand the Bible without the Holy Spirit. You can't grow without the Spirit. You're not gifted without the Spirit. You can't do anything spiritual without the power of the Spirit. So there's nothing of value that we Christians can do except in the power of the Spirit. And so what that means is you cannot be cautious about the Holy Spirit. You cannot afford to be cautious about the Spirit. That's like being cautious about breathing. Breathing is very important to the physical life, isn't it? And none of us sit there thinking, do you know what, I'm going to ration my breathing. I don't want to get carried away with breathing because you know what might happen. So I'm just going to take in what I need to take in. It'll be little sniffs because, let's face it, nobody wants to get carried away. Can you imagine Jesus saying, blessed are those who do not get carried away? I'm going to send you out as sheep amongst wolves, but don't get carried away. We need as much of the power of the Holy Spirit as we can possibly receive. Everything that happens to us begins with the Spirit. So, for example, nobody becomes a Christian except by the Spirit. If you know Jesus, it is because the Spirit has revealed him to you, not because of your ingenuity, wit, intelligence, uh, religious instinct. It's because the Spirit has made him known. And you can tell whether you're a Christian or not. A Christian is somebody who knows Jesus, not somebody who simply knows about him. Now, in most churches from time to time, there are the religious. There are people who are here amongst us because they want to do the spiritual right thing. But being in church doesn't make you a Christian in the same way that going to McDonald's does not make you a burger. You know, you're a Christian if you know Jesus. There's a difference between you know, knowing, unfortunately now you have some kind of knowledge of me, don't you? But imagine all you'd come across was one of my books. You don't know me. Even if you read the book and read and memorize it, you still don't know me. You, need, you know about me maybe by reading the book, but you don't know me. To know me is to have a chat with me afterwards and say, I hated your talk. That's when we have an interaction and I say, well, you're going to hell, it's fine. Um, so basically, um, that's when we begin a relationship of a kind. So you either know Jesus or you don't. The one thing a Christian cannot be is religious. Because Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship with the living God, made real to us by the person of the Spirit. So we even start with the Spirit, otherwise nothing's happening. Even if we don't realize it, the wind is so mysterious, we think that it's all us, you know, if, you're doing, if you've been doing Alpha or you've done Alpha, it's all us, I'm thinking about it, I'm asking these questions, I've got my doubts, I've, you know, it's all, oh, I like that, I didn't like that, oh, I don't know, I'm not going to church this week, oh, th that kind of thing, right? Basically, however, behind all of that is the unstoppable power of God who is drawing you to Jesus and will make him known. That's spiritual birth. We need to know spiritual birth just to start with. And then we need to know spiritual growth. Um, Jesus describes the Spirit as a counselor, one who's called alongside to help. And the primary work of the Spirit is to glorify the Son, to glorify Jesus. And one of the main ways he does this is to work in our lives to reveal the likeness of Jesus in ever-increasing measure. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we are being changed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. And this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. 
So if we're not actively seeking the presence of the Spirit, we stand no chance of being transformed. So look, I've started quite a lot of churches around the world, and I have seen lots of church leaders do stuff, and basically in our church, we have always insisted on one thing, which is that when people feel God is speaking to them and not otherwise, they come forward for prayer. So I don't understand the reticence that some churches have about coming forward, you know, because you can hear an amazing talk in which the power of the Spirit is speaking to you, but you can also receive prayer from your brothers and sisters, which will actually make you capable of doing the thing you feel inspired to do. So my advice to you is, even if the appeal is for one-legged pregnant women, would like, they like to come forward, I would still go forward on quite a regular basis. And if you've never gone forward and received prayer, what are you doing? We are told to go on being filled with the Spirit. If we can't do the thing in here, how on earth are we going to do it anywhere else? And you'll say, but I'm so, John, I'm so English. I'm English. It's private. You know, I'm a private person. What if I cried? Oh, no! What if you cried? Gordon Bennett. It's like being in hospital and worrying about bleeding. For goodness sake, you need to come forward when the Spirit speaks to you. Not when he doesn't, but when he does speak to you, please come forward and let people pray for you to be filled with the Spirit. I have heard so many stories of people who've done that, and people have prayed for them, and they've known things about them they couldn't possibly know, and it's so encouraging, and it helps people to think that God is actually real, he's alive, he's empowering me, and he's doing the business through me, and he wants to. My friend James here was reminding me of his stepfather. So his stepfather used to go to church and read the paper at the back, just to make it really clear he was not interested in any way. Read the paper, read the paper, read the paper. And then one day something happened, he had a crisis, Jesus revealed himself to him, and from that moment onwards, this guy, who was not really that pastoral, he would say, is compelled to find the smelliest, stinkingest tramp that comes in and sit with them for the duration of the thing until that guy becomes a Christian. So prior to the work of the Spirit, he is absolutely useless to the mission of the church. After the work of the Spirit, he's in the forefront of what God is doing. Now that's not a man, it's not to do with him, can you see? It's to do with the power of the Spirit getting hold of an unlikely person and basically doing something with their life. And I want every single one of us here to be the unlikely man and woman. So look, what we don't need is more of our schemes, our ingenuity, our ability to throw money at things. God, goodness knows we've tried that, all of that in the church. We need the power of the Spirit to make us into interesting people, just as Jesus was interesting. Have you ever thought about the fact that people who really, really, really didn't do church liked Jesus? They liked him. I mean, it's nice to be liked, right? It's particularly nice to be a Christian who's liked by people who are not Christians, as opposed to spending our life living in a holy bubble, right, with our friends who are all Christians. I'm going around to my small group and it's Christian. I'm doing this with Christians. I'm going to a Christian conference with Christians. I'm going to a worship conference with Christians. I don't think we need any more conferences. I think what we basically need is to be out there making some more friends. You know, I was uh, listening to somebody talk about the issue of singleness, a woman who was single for a very long time, and she was saying one of her pieces of advice is to make sure you're going out and meeting new people. Because she said, basically, when you're a kid, you're always meeting people. When you're a young person, you're meeting people. But actually, your circle diminishes unless you actively seek to break into new circles. Now, I would say that's where we are. We, we are Norman Nomates Christians, right? 
who were not out there breaking into new circles. And I think what Christians go, woo, bye. Straight, that John that went straight over my head. See, it's going straight over my head. Bye. I, I'm no good at talking about my faith. That's not my job. I'm not an evangelist. Bye. Woo. See you later. Well, I think the time for that is gone. I think that's over. The time of thinking, do you know what? Somebody else can do that. I think it's over. Unless we want to close down. Because we're in a crisis. Spiritual gifts, we need those. There's been such a hoo-ha about spiritual gifts, hasn't there, in the church? Oh, speaking in tongues, I don't want to speak in tongues. For goodness sake, Paul says, earnestly desire the gifts of the Spirit. When was the last time you did that? Here's the list. There are three of them. I pray for every one of them every day. When was the last time you did that? Earnestly desire. It means salivate over. It means dribbling saliva coming down your mouth because you want to eat. It means I am really, really hungry and you're stopping me from eating. Get out of my way. I'm pushing you out of the way so I can get the food. That's what it means to earnestly desire. When was the last time you earnestly desired the gifts of the Spirit like Paul tells us all to? It's crucial. Why? Because the gifts of the Spirit are the means by which we advance the kingdom of God. So if we're not earnestly desiring the tools to get the job done, we're not going to get the job done. Just saying. And then finally, spiritual power. We need spiritual power. We need to be filled with the power of the Spirit of God again and again and again and again. We need to be red-hot places. It doesn't matter whether people aren't healed when we pray for them, whether we've suffered disappointments, whether we've had bad experiences at the hands of charismatics. I bet you, your worst experience, I bet I could top it but it does not stop me from carrying on, carrying on. You know, we pray for tons of sick people. We're, praying, we're doing an hour for, for four weeks for anybody that's got long-term sickness in our church right now. Now, I don't care whether they're healed or not. I'd prefer them to be healed, obviously, but if they're not healed, that will not stop me. Why? Because I've prayed for enough people who have been healed. And because one's been healed, I'm going to carry on. See, when God does signs and wonders, it makes a difference. So a couple of weekends ago, I'm on my alpha weekend, and I feel God say to me, Could you, would you mind speaking about the Gadarene demoniac? So this is Mark 5, and this is Legion, who's got tons of demons. I have never done that on an Alpha weekend. It's frightening. Anyway, so I do do, do this, and when we do ministry, this person who um, got involved in the occult, um, basically completely, the demonic thing completely kicked off in her, and we did a full-on deliverance in front of everybody on the course. Now, I'd like to make the point that at the end of that time, most people believed in God. And that, that is because when God is positively at work in our midst, then people believe it's interesting. That's why we need to be characterized by the power of signs and wonders. Not every single time we meet, and it's not just about that kind of thing. A sign and wonder can be doing a food bank. It can be, you know, showing love in lots of different ways, but hopefully in a way that goes beyond just us and our ingenuity. But we need to be characterized by events that require an explanation. And in particular, got to be open to the power of the Spirit. Amen. Mm. Words of knowledge. Come on. My friends are just going to give some words of knowledge, then we'll pray for people. Hurry up. going to stand here and hope something comes out. Oh, it's coming out. Yay. Okay. Where were they? Uh, so I believe that somebody uh, had 
a very bad dream last night involving uh, a quite traumatic experience with your teeth chattering, uh, possibly so much so that when you woke up this morning, your jaw was aching. Um, and also get the sense that a lot of people have, or some people have been experiencing um, anxiety with a physical shaking this morning. Uh, that there's something building up in them that feels quite um, overpowering. I have a picture of a lady with curly red hair and glasses. Um, just come up for prayer, if that's you. Um, uh, and also um, somebody who collects dolphins. You have a big, you're a big fan of dolphins. Um, come for prayer. Hi, um, I feel like there might be a lady here who um, has recently lost some kind of uh, significant amount of possessions, perhaps to do with a house and value on a house, um, and something to do with the, the legal kind of stuff that goes along with owning a house and losing some finances related to that, um, and that has made you feel really alone. So come for prayer if that's you, and also someone who used to be a chorister, might <laughs> be many people, <laughs> um, but yeah, just that—that's a big part of of your childhood or your identity, and that you were a chorister for a long time. Um, so yeah, come for prayer if that's you. So I had three words. One uh, fits with what Chloe said about the house. I felt someone had um, a lot of money stolen. And, uh, and that's really hard because of the after effects of that. So if that's you, just come, come forward for prayer. God knows. God knows what's going on. He knows everything that's happening with that. So you can trust him. Uh, I saw a picture of someone on a, a treadmill um, with one of those masks over their face doing, a. I think it's called a stress test. Um, you've got something going on with your heart. They're not sure what it is. You're also struggling to sleep. God knows what it is. You're going to be okay. You're safe. Come forward for prayer. And um, when someone prays for you, just mention that. And they'll pray for healing. And then someone who feels called to women, specifically women who are um, stuck in the, um, uh, in the, uh, the sex uh, trade and industry. Um, and, but you've been silenced years ago when your heart was for that. I think God wants to release you into that and also deal with some of the pain of being shut down. Um. Do we, do we just go, go for here? Yeah. Um, should we stand? Um, in the silence of your own heart, would you mind lifting up to God anything which